0: Well, good morning. As we uh, come to the end of summer, unfortunately, we're going to keep on... Um I know that's that's a sore subject to start on, isn't it? Um we're gonna continue in our summer in the Psalms. Uh so I invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm ninety-one, is where we're gonna be camping out today. Um if you have just gotten plugged in recently uh and you're unfamiliar with the staff here at FAC, uh, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm one of the pastors here. Um I oversee all of our middle school and high school students. Um and I'll get the honor of sharing God's word with you. Um, this morning. Uh, and this morning I do have to give a lot of credit to uh, a pastor by the name of Tim Keller. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with him, he's a pastor up in New York. Uh, a good deal of influence from uh, Tim Keller. Uh, he had a great deal of influence on the sermon this morning. Uh, a lot of his thoughts have creeped into uh, the sermon. And so I just want to uh, give credit where credit is due as he's helped me out quite a bit on this one. Um, so Psalm 91, we're going to read together uh, and then I'll pray For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I will protect Him because He knows my name. When He calls to me, I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will rescue Him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Dear Father, I ask now that uh, your Spirit would engage our minds, and that through the engagement of our minds, he would penetrate our hearts as we study your good and perfect word. In your holy name I pray. Amen. This past week, um, two weeks ago, my brother and sister-in-law were in with their kids, uh, they came to, in to visit from California, and so we decided to go as a family to, uh, Cedar Point. Uh, Cedar Point is an amusement park in Sandusky, Ohio, and it has earned the nickname rightfully so, the roller coaster capital of the world, uh, It has 17 different roller coasters, uh, which is the second most of any amusement park in the entire world. And perhaps the most intimidating one um, is the Top Thrill Dragster. Right? The Top Thrill Dragster, this coaster shoots you off at a speed of about 120 miles per hour and launches you up a track that is 420 feet in the air. Uh, to put that in perspective, that's taller than the Statue of Liberty. Now, you have to understand, I've been on this ride several times. Um, I've been on this ever since it came out when I was a teenager. I've never batted an eye at the thing. Uh, but for some reason, this time, I grew extremely nervous and uneasy And as I, as I buckled my seatbelt and as I pulled the lap bar down, I could feel my heart rate start to increase and start beating a little bit, uh, more heavy. And as we, um, rolled out of the loading dock, I began to panic because obviously there's no turning back, right? I was, I was in it now. There, there was no way I could stop this thing from happening. And as, and as I sat there for a few seconds waiting to be launched into oblivion, questioning my own life decisions, one thought that crossed my mind was, man, I've become a real wimp as I grow older. I'm a, I'm a real wimp. And after the ride, I made it, by the way. Everything was okay. Um, I can't say the same for my brothers. Um, I had some time to reflect on that existential moment Right, and I realize that it's not that I've become a wimp in my age, but as I've grown older, I've just become more aware of what can go wrong on roller coasters. Right, I've become uh, educated to all of the dangers that present itself. Um, I've had more life experience, and I know about the disasters that ling- linger around the, the, the corner. And so, while I did have a piece. In this particular situation, when I was younger, it was an ignorant piece. It was a stupid piece. It was a, it was a kind of piece that's unaware of the calamities that surround me. It's, it's not that I was bold or, or confident in the face of danger in my younger years. I was, I was merely unconscious to danger is what it came down to. And it's not a far stretch to see how this plays out in, uh, in our life. I find that as I grow older, my worry also grows. You know, the the more that we are exposed to this broken world, the more we worry. The the more we have to worry about. And and our worry comes in all varieties, right? What do we worry about? We worry about all kinds of things. We worry about our, our family. We worry about our friends. We worry about our kids. We worry about our health, we worry about our bank account, we worry about our job security, we worry about our future, we worry about our looks, we worry about politics, we worry about terrorists, we worry about pets, we worry about the weather, just to name a few. We worry so, there's so much to worry about how on earth can we live in peace, When there's so much to worry about, how can we live, um, have peace in a world like this? You know, we have to find a peace that is stronger than that ignorant peace that I spoke about a moment ago. We need to find a better peace, an informed peace that is aware to the danger that lurks. This is the main point of Psalm 91. The main point of Psalm 91, the psalmist wants to communicate, is that you can have peace, you can have a sense of security in the midst of danger. And Psalm 91 is a rich text that we can turn to in times of hardship for rich comfort. And this is very evident in the first couple verses where we actually see four metaphors accompanied by four divine names that describe the security that we find in God. What does it say? It says we're in the shelter of the Most High. We're in the shadow of the Almighty. My God is my refuge, my fortress. Obviously, those last two, my my refuge, my fortress, describe that uh, we get this idea of just a strong defense, right? We are defended. Um, but what about shelter and shadow? This actually doesn't pack as good of a punch as it might have to the original reader. And this is why. To the original reader uh, who lived in the arid desert that didn't have the luxury of air conditioning to get into shelter, to get into the shadow, to take cover from the, the scorching heat of the sun could have been a matter of life or death. This was an issue of them of I'm going to pass out in the heat and die here unless I get into shelter, unless I get into a shadow. So we get this idea that not only is God our strong defense, not only is the Most High, the, 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 the Almighty, our strong defense, but the shadow, he provides relief from the heat wave. And all four of these metaphors imply um, closeness in proximity, right? Think about it. To be in the shelter, right? You're, you're beneath it. To be in the shadow, you're behind whatever the object is that's blocking the sun. To be a refuge or a fortress, you're within it. And so essentially, we could ask the question, where are you in proximity to God? How close are you to God? Our position Towards God is absolutely vital. When um, my family had come in a couple weeks ago, we went to a family's friend's house during the week. They live on a, a lake, and they they've got a boat that's on the lake. And so we decided to take the kids out on the boat. Now the guy that drives it, he he's got uh, the lead foot uh, for boat drivers. I don't know what you would call it in the sense of a boat, but he was just flying right. And every notch that he would up in speed and every wild twist and turn, every time that happened, my son Jacob, who's three years old, was sitting next to me. He would begin to cling on me tighter and tighter with every sharp turn. Right, and He actually got to the point where he is like burying his head behind my back. He's taking cover because in his mind, he didn't articulate this, but in his mind, he knows that my father is my shelter. He is my refuge. He is, he is safety, right? He embodies safety. And so the closer that I am to him, the more safe and secure I feel, right? It's the same with God. Where are you in position? Where are you in your own life in relation to God? What is your position towards Him? Can you sit here in good conscience and say, my God is my refuge? Unfortunately, when we take a closer look at our hearts and our actions, this may just be a bunch of lip service. Sure, you can sit here and say, my God is my refuge, um, but when you look at your life, You see, you have many other things that are your refuge. And my job status is my refuge. If only I keep this job, or if only I get that promotion, then I will be, um, then I will be protected. I'll be safe. We make our relationships our refuge. If only he loves me and continues to make me happy. If only she makes me feel a certain way, then I will be Satisfied. We make our bank account our refuge. If only I can make this much money, or I can put this much money away before I retire, then, then I will be protected. The problem is all of these other things that we take refuge in promise on things and then they don't deliver. They they have, they carry a bunch of failed promises. And what are some of those failed promises? Take a look at verses 14 through 16. We're going to jump around a little bit. Um, but this passage actually shifts uh, where the psalmist is writing. And, and then starting at verse 14, God begins to speak. Right? He's writing on behalf of God. We see a, a divine pronoun. So when you see the word I, it's actually God speaking to you, to us. And these are the promises, verses 14, 15, and 16. What does he promise us? He, he pr- promises... I, I will deliver you, I will protect you, I will answer you, I will be with you, I will rescue you, I will honor you, I will satisfy you, I will show you my salvation. There's eight different promises right there. And everything else that we take refuge in promises those same things, but none of them deliver. None of them deliver on the promise. They are empty promises. All of these other promises that we take refuge in provide us then a false sense of security. They give us that ignorant peace that I spoke about earlier. A a peace that's not really a peace. It's a fake peace. It's no peace at all because of how fragile it is. One crack in its foundation and it's gone. And it's done. No, we need something stronger. We need something better. And that's what we see in verses 3 through 13, just the, the the refuge that, that shelter described through God, the type of refuge that we have in God. God is compared in these verses to a mother bird, right? That covers you with its, with its feathers, with its wings. A mother bird um, will place her giant wings over her young to, to protect them, to shield them from all sorts of things. Rain, The sun, hail, uh, predators, anything that you can imagine, the mother bird spreads the wings out, takes on the, the elements herself so that she can protect her young. And mother birds can be quite passionate about protecting their young. They can be very fiery so to speak. I had an experience one time in an encounter with a mother goose protecting her young, and I'm just going to say that I learned my lesson the hard way. And we're going to stop that story right there. They're feisty. They get angry. They don't back down. You know, most of the time, God is described in a masculine fashion, but here in this section, we actually see that His care uh, is described in a very motherly fashion. Tim Keller says that um, he thinks the reason this is here is because human fathers often can re- uh, lead remotely, right? They can be isolated uh, in, in their leadership, and so this is really the scripture saying that, that that God is the best father that you could could possibly have, right? He's the He's the perfect father who is also tender in his care. But not only is he tender in his care, but he's, he's strong. He's described as a shield, a buckler, or, or a rampart, right? It's a, it's a symbol of strength, unmoving, unwavering protection. What verse four is doing, it's combining the warm protectiveness of uh, a mother bird with the hard, unyielding strength of armor. Once again, there is peace. There is protection. There is a shelter in times of danger. So as we move on, I want to make a few observations about this passage. The first is that you will notice that the terror described is very real. The threat is real. In verse 3, we're told that he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. A fowler is a professional bird catcher. The snare is a trap that they set with with uh, bait. And this is implying that we've been caught by the snare. We are experiencing the snare. If he has to rescue us out of the snare, then that means we are in the snare itself, right? There is terror in the night. We see the arrows that fly by day. We're aware of the arrows that fly by day. We see with our very eyes in verses 7 and 8, we see with our own eyes the thousands that fall. We experience the threat. The threat is real. And we're reminded of this uh, in Ephesians when Paul describes our threat, our struggle. This is what he says in Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are fighting a spiritual war. We are in the midst of battle. And we have no idea how powerful the rulers, the authorities, and the powers of this dark world are. There are spiritual forces at hand we're in the midst of battling them, and some of us need to wake up and see what's really going on here. Some of us truly don't understand what's at stake because we are blind to such terror. Especially in this country, we live, we live comfortable, secure, easy spiritual lives. We're comfortable. We're secure. It's easy. But you see, our comfort is misleading, our security is fabricated, and our ease is fake because there's a spiritual war happening in this world, in this country, in this city, in our hearts. Now, as scary as it is, although the terror of the night is very real, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry, and I suppose that's the second observation. Yes, there is calamity, there is a threat, but don't fear. I see, some of you are on this end of the the spectrum where you don't realize really what's going on, how bad these things really are, the, the terror of the night, you're just oblivious to it. However, the pendulum does swing to the other way, and some of you are very aware, and some of you worry all the time. And some of you are very concerned about what is going on in this world, in this country, in our own hearts. And you worry all the time, and it cripples you, scares you. It's debilitating, and I see it. it, It saps the life out of you because you're thinking too much about the danger and the threats. And so if you're in that boat, you have to understand that yes, There is plenty to be worried about. Yes, there is danger out there, but you will be safe from it. This is a promise in verses 9 and 10. If you make God my refuge, no danger will befall me. While you experience danger, while you experience danger, you won't fall to it. You know, to experience danger and falling to danger are two dramatically different things. God never promises you in this life that you, uh, He never promises the absence of terror. But He does promise you protection from it. He does promise you protection in the face of it. He never promises that you're not going to walk through the furnace. But He does promise that He's going to walk with you through it. He's going to be there with you. Psalm 23, right? Probably the most famous psalm of all. I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But I'm comforted. Why? Because his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Who's leading me through the valley of the shadow of death? God is. God is. You're going to experience it, but you won't fall to it. We see this further in verse 13. It builds, right? The, the psalmist gives two images that are often associated with the devil it's, it's an adder in the ESV, uh, which would be a cobra. We had a snake um, and a lion, a roaring lion. The cobra, obviously, we get that imagery uh, especially from Genesis 3. The roaring lion, you can actually look at 1 Peter 5:8, where he's described like this. It says this: be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Now, it sounds threatening, like we've always said, already said, but what's the promise that we have in verse 13? we are promised that we are going to walk all over the cobra and the lion. We're going to trample the cobra and the lion underfoot. They're going to be trampled under our feet. We get this picture that we're not merely um, survivors just making it out of this catastrophic event. No, we're actually victors. As Romans 8 says, we are more than conquerors. It's not that we're just going to merely make it. No, we're going to come out victorious and strong through Jesus. Now, before I go any further, it's important to note that we could make this psalm say something very, very dangerous. Right? There is a face value meaning to this psalm that simply isn't true. It would be easy to read this passage like this and ignorantly believe that as long as I trust in God, nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. Well, look, look what it says. It says no evil will ever befall me, right? No plague is going to come into my tent. His angels are going to protect me from e- even falling. It sounds like, according to Tim Keller, it looks like we're not even going to stub our toe. Right? There's, there's never going to be anything wrong that happens to us if I trust in God. But my challenge is... What if it doesn't? What if those things don't happen? What if I do fall? What if I do suffer? What then? This is a false interpretation that the believer won't suffer. And how do we know this is a false interpretation? One of the primary arguments is that this is the way the devil interpreted the passage. Now, I'm very careful about throwing around the name of Satan, the the, the devil, because we actually do give him more credit than he often deserves. He's not, he's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not, he's not all powerful. He's not omnipotent, right? And so I would question if, you know, you get into that trap of saying Satan uh, tempted me or Satan attacked me in this way. He probably didn't, if we're being completely honest. Uh, maybe one of his spiritual minions has, but I would be willing to bet that it wasn't the devil himself. So we do have to be careful. However, I'm confident to say that this is what the devil believes because we're told about it in Matthew 4. If you go to Matthew 4, we get the, uh, the, 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 the spot where Jesus has just been baptized He's starting his ministry, and he's led by the Spirit into the desert, where he is continuously tempted by Satan himself. And what's recorded is three specific uh, temptations. The second one, Satan takes him to the top of the temple, right? And, and then he quotes Scripture. The devil is actually quoting Scripture. And this is what he says, and he quotes Psalm 91, Then you say, hey Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, if you're the Son of God, if your Father is who He says He is, then throw yourself down from here because this is what His Word says, Jesus, and this is what He says. He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. If you're really the son of God, then why don't you take advantage of God's words? Throw yourself off this temple and your a- the angels will come and rescue you. He's telling Jesus, you don't have to suffer. Nothing's going to happen to you if God is really who he says he is. In the third temptation, similar idea. He shows the kingdoms of the earth to Jesus and he says, "Hey Jesus, I have dominion over the earth. And I will give you this dominion. All you have to do is bow down to me. If you look at the interpretation of that passage, what Satan is doing is giving Jesus a way out of the cross. He's saying, hey, Jesus, you don't need to go through all that trouble to be elevated in these kingdoms. You don't have to go to the cross to inherit these kingdoms to be glorified. I'll just give it to you. I'm offering you a way out. I'm giving you a way out of suffering. This is why we have to be very, very careful with this passage. Because I'm convinced what the devil is strategically doing is convincing us. He wants us to believe that if God is good, then I won't suffer. Therefore, if I suffer, then God must not be good. If I suffer, then maybe God doesn't exist at all. Or we can get into the heresy of, if I suffer, maybe I'm not putting enough faith in God. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. You ask any non-Christian why they don't believe in Jesus, why they don't believe in God, and I guarantee you, if you took a poll the majority of them would be hung up on this issue. Hung up on the fact that I can't believe in a God who allows pain and suffering in the world. I can't believe in a God that lets this happen. However, if you search Scripture, you will find that the Christian walk and suffering goes hand in hand with each other. If this passage is to be interpreted like that, then how come when you come to Job 1, you get Satan once again scouring the earth, looking to harass somebody, right? And God actually offers Job up, right? He, he tells God, hey, I am, I have searched the whole world, God. I'm looking for somebody to torment. And God responds to him by saying, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered Job? Like, hey, God, It's God's idea. Not only has Job fallen to suffering, but he's fallen to suffering because it was God's idea. And if Psalm 91 is to be interpreted like that, then how come you get a story like Joseph, who's beaten by his brothers, thrown into a pit and left for dead, and then sold as a slave to passerby's? taken to Egypt where he's finally getting some good things happening to him and then is accused falsely and thrown into prison for many, many years. And if Psalm 91 is to be interpreted like this, then how come you have Jesus Christ who walked a blameless, perfect life, an innocent man who hung on a criminal's cross, crying out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only explanation is that suffering is part of the Christian life. And so what do we do then with a passage like this that seems to be contradictory? Well, we need to look at it with a different perspective, a different perspective, an eternal perspective. You know, when you watch a movie, a great movie in the theater with that real good punch of a twist at the end, you can never unsee that twist. And then you go back and watch the movie and you start seeing things differently. You see these little details in the movie, these little plot elements that you didn't notice before, but you now see them because you have the ending in mind. You have the twist in mind. You can never watch the movie the same because your perspective has changed. You've been given a new set of eyes. You're looking at it through a different lens of understanding. In the same way, the Scriptures have a shocking, scandalous Twist ending. When it appears that we've lost everything, we've actually gained everything. When it seems like we've lost the war, in the end, we actually win the war. When our warrior king, Jesus, suffers and dies, he lives. Twist ending. And you will never look at life the same. You will never be able to look at life the same because now what was once veiled to you has been unveiled and you see life differently. And it's really hard to read the Old Testament, to read the Psalms without looking at it through the Gospel lens. And so for the original reader, they may have understood this as some kind of spiritual protection. However... When we look at 91, when we interpret 91, we have to interpret it from the perspective of eternity, that God is working out all things together for good. In the big picture, there may not be a silver lining to the things that you're going through. I don't want to downplay the suffering that you are experiencing. There are no good things that come out of some of the the things that you are dealing with right now. In this life, there may not be um, th- there may not be any good that comes from it. From your health issues, from your financial issues. You can try and be optimistic and look for the silver lining, but I am here to tell you it just might be bad. It might just be something that you are going through that is bad. However, while there is no silver lining in the immediate sense, there is hope in the eternal sense. Ultimately. Whatever you go through, no evil will befall you. You will be protected. And so while you experience this pain, and you experience this hardship, and you encounter trouble, none of it will overtake you come eternity. None of it will overtake you. And we're reminded of this in 1 Corinthians 15, that even death... What's described as our final enemy is going to be destroyed. And not only is it going to be destroyed, but it's the method that God uses to glorify Himself by raising you up. I think a great passage to kind of cross-reference comes in Luke 21. This is very helpful in our understanding and in our interpretation of Psalm 91. Listen to what it says. Jesus is talking about His disciples. He's basically prepping them for what is going to happen as a result of following Him. He says this, But before all this they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of on my name. You will be uh, betrayed even by parents, brothers, and sisters, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will be will, will perish. Did you catch that? Some of you will be put to death, but not a hair on your head is going to be, it's not going to perish. It's, it's like an oxymoron. <laughs> no, Wait, you just told me that I'm going to die, but not a hair on my head is going to perish? What he's saying is bad things are going to happen to you, but I will keep you safe. I will keep you safe eternally. Often God will allow suffering uh, to happen to us for our good. It it ultimately helps us. And while we won't be able to see it in this life, we will certainly be able to see it in, in the next. And while he does allow suffering for our good, he will never let suffering ultimately hurt us in the end. You will use suffering for good. We're reminded of this in, uh, with the story of Joseph. Right? We get to the end of Genesis, and um, the, his brothers find out who he really is in Egypt. He's been elevated to a high position, the second most powerful man in Egypt. And um, his brothers figure out who he is, and they start panicking, right, because they knew of all the things that he had done uh, to them, right? Uh, but they reconcile, it's a really beautiful picture of reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. Uh, he, he brings his father, his whole family, down to Egypt so they can survive the famine. And after some time goes on, the, their brothers get a little nervous again. Hey, what if Joseph comes out and wants to enact vengeance and revenge on us? What happens? All right? And they're kind of scared of Joseph. And Joseph says, hey, guys, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. What man intends for evil, God intends for, for good. And so, because of this, evil will never befall you because God is going to take it, He is going to use it, and ultimately it will work together for good. In January of 1956, there were five missionaries uh, that were slaughtered in Ecuador as they attempted to share their faith with uh, native Indians uh, in the area. One of those missionaries was the now famous martyr Jim Elliott. And so when um, Elizabeth Elliott, Jim's wife, wrote about the life and testament of her late husband, she named her book after Psalm 91. The name of the book is The Shadow of the Almighty, which comes straight from Psalm 91. It seems counterintuitive that um, Elizabeth Elliott would name a book about the death of her husband after a psalm that offers a promise of protection. And so the world, this didn't make any sense, but the w- widow saw things from a different vantage point. Uh, and in response, this is what she said straight from the book. The, the world called it uh, a nightmare of tragedy. The world did not recognize the truth of the second clause in Jim Elliot's credo. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. To gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What he's saying, what she's saying is, hey, my husband, my husband gave up something that he was going to lose anyway, his life. But he gained something that he's never going to lose, eternity. Why? Because all things work together for those who love God. How did Jim Elliott secure such a prize? By resting in the shadow of the Almighty, by dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, by calling on God to be his refuge and fortress. Have you done this yourself? Are you willing to set aside your pride and take shelter under the shadow of his wings this very day? In Jesus' final week, before he went to the cross, he's in the temple, right? The temple grounds, and he's kind of stirring up a little bit of trouble, some some controversy, right? He's basically rebuking the religious leaders of the time for their pride, for their ignorance, for their arrogance. He's extremely harsh on them, Uh, but right in the middle of this rebuke, There is a a glimmer of compassion. You see Jesus' compassion uh, right in the middle of this rebuke in Matthew 23. And this is what he says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. How I have longed to protect you. How I have longed and desired to, to gather you around and put you under my wings so that the judgment will fall on me instead of you. So you will be protected and I will take on the judgment. I will take on the elements for you. I, I so just want you to come so that I can gather you under my wings. But you're not willing. You're too prideful. You're too arrogant. You haven't, and you won't, because you're not willing. You've taken refuge somewhere else. And unfortunately, when the end of days come, the only safe spot is going to be beneath the wings of God Almighty, Jesus Christ. And so I would like to invite you to take refuge in Him today to follow him, submit to him before it's too late. It's been a risk so far, but perhaps he's working in your heart. He's working through your mind. And you've come to realize I have not made God my refuge through Jesus. Let today be that day. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word we thank you for the security that you have promised, the salvation that you have promised that we will see, Father. While people mock us and berate us, Father, we hold on to the promise and the hope, the foundational hope that someday uh, we'll be vindicated and we will see your salvation. And so we ask that, Father, in your name, um, that when that day comes, there would not be a single person in this room that would perish. I pray, Father, that not a single person in this room um, would be out and about, um, not under your wings of shelter and protection, Lord. I thank you for our morning, Lord. I pray now for our offering as well, Father. The ways that you have richly blessed us, I pray now that we can go on and bless others, um, with the, the the funds that you have given us, Father. I pray, Lord, that we can speak of uh, Jesus and elevate his name um, using the money that you will bless your church with today, Father. And in your holy name I pray, amen.